Hey, I'm Nikki. And I'm Emily. And welcome to That Six Letter Word, a podcast about being 20-something and living with that six-letter word that no one wants to hear, cancer. We are two friends that have lived and are living with this diagnosis, and we have some similarities and many differences. We dive into our experiences as young women, patients, friends, and survivors. Our hope is that this podcast resonates with any person going through any challenge, not just cancer. And we're here to remind you that we're all just people taking life one step at a time and spreading joy as often as we can. Hey, Emily. Hey, Nikki. Welcome back to another episode of That Six Letter Word. We're glad you're here. We're so excited because we have a very special guest with us today. Yes. So uh, we're excited. This is Lauren, my friend, my new friend. Uh, Lauren works for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in the state of Michigan. So I met her through my involvement there. And she is also a survivor and an advocate and kind of works in this a lot more than either of us do and probably knows more about these organizations. So we're excited to have her. Um, Welcome on, Lauren. We're glad you're here. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, so I guess, do you want to give us the quick rundown of who you are and maybe the work you do and I I guess the first inklings of how you got into it? Of course. So um, yes, Nikki, we're new friends. Um, We met because uh, of my job and your, uh, you know, stage in life brought you to the Footsteps of LLS, um, you were featured on our national website and I read your story, reached out to our marketing department, said, I need to know who this is. I need to talk to her. I saw that you were from Michigan and um, here we are today. I'm very excited to uh, be continuing our relationship. Um, I am here at LLS because I have a history of cancer. Um, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 18. Um, So I was a freshman in college at Grand Valley State University right in my very first semester um, when I discovered I had a lump right above my collarbone um, and wasn't quite sure what that lump was. And luckily my mom was actually with me. I was sitting in the passenger seat of her car. It was like a parents weekend, I believe. And she was visiting me. And I kind of went to unbuckle my seatbelt, felt a lump. Mom, what the heck is this? I have no idea. This feels really hard, a weird place to have a bump. Um, And she said, you know, in a week, if it's still there, give me a call. Um, and so all week, of course, I'm playing with it. I'm touching it. I'm like, am I just getting mono? What's happening? Um, and it didn't go down. Um, and I could have sworn it grew. I mean, obviously probably not, but (laughs) it could have sworn it had, uh, gotten bigger in size and, but it was hard, but it didn't hurt. So it made me really cautious and really nervous. So um, I actually called my mom on the way to Michigan State University uh, where I was going to have a fun weekend with friends because it was Halloween weekend, um, my freshman year. So I had my uh, costume packed and I was really ready to um, have a fun weekend, but on the car ride over, I just, I I couldn't. Um, And I knew I would be halfway across the state. I'm originally from the east side of Michigan. So Um, I called my mom and I said, can you come pick me up from Michigan State? Um, I think we should probably go get it checked out. So she did. She came the next day, um, went and got it checked out. And that Monday I was in an oncologist's office at the age of 18, wondering what the heck I was doing there. What could this be? They had something, said something about lymphoma, something about Hodgkin or something. For me, it was a whirlwind. I had no idea. Um, I just knew I was surrounded by a bunch of old people in a waiting room and not sure what to think of it. So um, fast forward a few months, I completed um, my semester because it was near the end of the semester. You know, October is pretty late time to be in the semester to be uh, discovering this. So I was able to finish out my finals and then I started chemo, um, six rounds of ABVD chemo. from December on to um, May of 2011. So I, you know, the whole nine, losing the hair, the um, mouth sores, fatigue, 
staying up way too late into the night because too many steroids <laughs> on a few occasions. Um, I, all of it, I, I experienced it all for, for six months um, and then I returned to school. So that's what my you know initial experience was with cancer. Um, but being that I'm still working in the cancer field, I've had a lot of experiences outside of my own diagnosis too in the cancer world and especially the young adult cancer world so yeah well yeah thank you so much for sharing all that it's bananas to think about being 18 and going through that just because you know i mean both emily and i were kind of professionals we were starting life and at least we're at a place where it was uh different right we didn't have to take off of college we didn't have young friends who probably didn't even really understand what was happening to us so i imagine that was yeah, crazy. Um, definitely an underserved and like under um, appreciated kind of time in life. Uh, you know, at 18, you are raring to get out of your parents' house, or at least I was, not everyone is, but I was ready to go. Um, I was ready to be two and a half hours away from home and not have um, that support system really close so that I could go live my independent life. I was ready to grow up and have some new experiences and immediately, um, almost immediately, it was ripped back and I had to return home. I had to literally move out of my dorm. Um, and I remember my friends I had made that semester helping me pack up the car and uh, head back home for, you know, six to eight months of treatment. Um, so yeah, it definitely was the worst time, but I'd say I also see some positives of it. I was still on my parents' insurance, which was really nice. Um, and school, Grand Valley was really forgiving about um, taking a semester off and kind of just delaying my school. And by the time I went back, I actually, um, I still graduated on time. I was able, I really only had to make up like one class um, to graduate on time. So there were a lot of benefits, but a lot of challenges that come with um, being a college student and having cancer. It's just so crazy to hear all of this and like I don't know what your plan was like when you first went into college or anything but like did this whole experience kind of like set you down a trajectory like were you oh like I'm gonna do this career path but then like through this whole experience you were like oh nope skirt gonna go do a different one yeah, I have that exact. <laughs> I, um, in high school, really loved math and science, but I knew I wanted to help people. So, of course, the natural um, path for that is to go into nursing school. So I was um, a nursing major that I went in and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to help people. I, I'm good at math, science, all of that. Um, I was getting a little anxious about the nursing program requirements. And then I remember going to like one, um, one info session about what's all needed to get into the nursing program. And it was probably not long after that, that this all started to happen. And I was already kind of having those second thoughts about that career choice. And when this happened, it completely pushed me into a whole new career path um, because I met a social worker and I had, I was assigned a social worker, her name is Leah. Um, I still chat with her from time to time. And um, she really opened my eyes to what the social work profession is. I had no idea. I thought, you know, it was just really child protective services. I had no idea. You know, you see it in movies occasionally or on dramas, um, but I learned all about what her job was. I even had a chance to do some like nonprofit fundraising interning um, while I was going through treatment just to keep busy. And it just completely opened my world, my eyes to a world that I didn't know existed before. So um, while I was in treatment, I'm literally sitting in my bed one day and I'd logged onto the Grand Valley like portal and I just online changed my major from nursing to social work. Didn't think twice about it. I literally just, my best friend was sitting there. I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this now. <laughs> Changed it and never looked back. Um, and so I ended up graduating with my BSW uh, from Grand Valley. Yeah, I was just going to say, I like I was already, you know, established and through stuff. And I just, yeah, it's, it's cool that that impacted. I think for me, it's like it is impacting the way that I think about my career and go about things. But I'm, you know, at a later point. So it's cool that you had the opportunity to kind of see that and uh, pursue it. Um, right. 
I guess it's kind of one of those. Of, sorry, yeah. go ahead, Nikki. No, you're good. I just, I, I'm interested, I guess, not just that, how it informs, like, you know, obviously it's like a negative that kind of turned into a positive and helped you like find your calling and all these things. But I'm curious too, just going into college, I mean, that changed your career trajectory. Did this also impact like the way that you interacted with people? I mean, I always, I know we've talked about this. I think about how tough it is for me to like even date now, right? We're coming out of this quarantine and people my age who are 25 to 27 or whatever, are saying like, oh, this quarantine is so bad. And they're describing their experience. And like, I find it hard to relate to them because I went through something else so intense right before this. And I imagine college is probably that magnified because people who are 18 have had even less, you know, devastating experiences than what you walked in with. So did that like change how you interacted with people or like the way you saw the world, the way you saw yourself? How was that going into college at such a young age at that point? Oh yeah. It I, now looking back on it, this probably wouldn't have been my answer in the moment, but looking back on it, it pushed me out of my comfort zone and to really discover who I actually was and embrace who I always thought I had been. Because 18 is such a time where you're trying to figure out your identity and yourself. And it really just pushed me to embrace like that I am outgoing. There was always this narrative growing up that I was shy, but I was like, no, I'm an outgoing person. I love helping people. I love talking to people. I love getting to know people. Um, and for some reason, that narrative that I was shy had really bled into a lot of my life. Um, and I started to believe it. And when this happened, I was like, I'm not, I'm not shy. And so you would find me when I actually ended up returning to school after treatment after that summer, you'd find me in the corner at parties just like having this like real deep talk <laughs> over a keg <laughs> with some random person. And um, I, you know, it really just made me own this whole experience. I was very open with it. I was quite an open book. You saw, you may have seen the YouTube videos I shared. I share a lot more details than I probably should have. Um, and I really just, um, just really, yeah, I, I came into my own, I think. Um, it also changed a lot of my friendships um, the and relationships. So I was dating someone at the time who I had been with for like three years in high school, into college. Um, and I just, I, I came to the realization that he wasn't my person and I couldn't keep doing it. I couldn't support him emotionally anymore. I couldn't do it. I had to focus on me and I had to just cut ties. So we ended up breaking up um, right not long after I started treatment. I kind of had like an epiphany. I was like, no, this relationship is not working anymore. So that went to the wayside. And then a lot of my friendships changed. I, It's really interesting in that time of life because you're trying to form new friendships in college. You've still got your friends in high school. So it was really interesting to me, and I know a lot of survivors have said the same thing, of who showed up and showed support and was there for you, and who was very clearly not. To this day, I remember who didn't say a damn word to me about anything I was going through, but yet I have people from high school that I never talked to. I went to a large high school, never talked to that person, messaging me on Facebook and, or various platforms, saying how proud they were, thought everything I was doing was awesome, um, so brave to share my story out on the internet like that, um, and also that they were just thinking of me and rooting me, rooting me on. And I have some friends, I, they're still in my friend group now that um, still have never asked me about it, never said a word about it. And, you know, with some reflection, it's, they can't, they might not have the tools to be able to have that conversation with me, they might not just be interested. I don't know, but that's a them problem, not a me problem. And that's something I had to learn the hard way a little bit. But yeah, it definitely changed the dynamic. And I think also showed me how to be a good friend by seeing the example of my friends that were good to me. Um, so yeah, definitely a lot of epiphanies at a very crucial time, right? <laughs> I mean, that's Incredibly interesting, and I know Nikki and I can relate very much to this, um, as we've had many conversations about this in the past, but 
one thing I do just want to go back on is you skirted over some of the YouTube video stuff. Can you oh, elaborate yeah. on that? Um, and I, I brought that up because I, I think I shared that with Nikki over lunch uh, a few months ago. But um, yeah, I at the time, so it was 2010 when I was diagnosed, um, winter 2010 going into 2011. So, you know, 10 10, 11 years ago now, um, and YouTube was kind of taking off. Um, people can have their platforms. And I, as a young adult, did not know where to turn to find community. Um, I wanted to talk to someone or see someone who had been through the same or a similar thing um, because it was not, I didn't have any family members that had ever had cancer up until that point. Um, not that I knew of or was close to. And so cancer was just a whole new world for my entire family. And to be 18, it's a very unique time. Uh, young adults getting cancer while we find each other, it's still a very small part, portion of the population, right? So I was just looking for any sort of example. Um, and of course, when you are dealing with a diagnosis, you have a lot of anxiety and you stay up all night scrolling the internet. And so I came across some YouTube videos um, of a girl. She was sharing her journey, um, kind of her feelings going through chemo. She shared her shaving her head um, the whole nine. And I was like, you know what? I should do that. I should start recording that. It was a two-prong reason. One, I thought it was awesome to be able to capture that. I'm a terrible writer, but I love to talk. So um, videoing myself on my little old Dell with really poor quality was perfect. Um, and then the other reason was um, I had a lot of people reaching out asking how I was, and I started to resent that question, how are you? Um, because it was like, I, I can't come up with a genuine, honest answer that you're looking for to appease you, <laughs> um, the person who's asking the question. And so I just was like, you know what, I'm going to make these videos weekly. People can know how I'm doing, kind of like a caring bridge or, you know, any of those other sites that you can do to update your journey. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to start a YouTube channel. And so I did and posted them weekly and they got picked up um by jenna marbles at the time um she's now off youtube which is very sad but um she was doing a giveaway for an n64 and she's like tell me why you deserve this n64 so i submitted my video to her a little like two minute like hey i'm going through chemo right now i'm so bored all my friends are at school i have nothing to do in my little hometown um, I've never owned an N64, would love to have an N64. Um, and she chose me in one and featured my, um, my video in one of her videos. And from there, it really took off. And those strangers across the world were watching my videos and it was wild. <laughs> and I, you know, biggest regret was not honing that and becoming a cancer influencer. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was a really cool um, way that I built my own community of support uh, online. And um, yeah, it was really awesome. It was cool. The, the videos are still up um, and highly embarrassing now to look back at, but I keep them up because there's always 18 year olds that are going to be a diagnosed, unfortunately. And so I hope that they can be, even though they're old now, um, I hope that they can at least be of some support. The treatment, the standard treatment for our Hodgkin's is mostly the same still. So um, even if maybe they're a little dated or my references are a little dated, uh, the experience is very much still real. So they're out there. <laughs> I'd have to look up my, uh, <laughs> my name on YouTube for you guys to post, but they are out there. Yeah, we'll have to find those and share them. I still haven't gotten the chance to watch one, but I, I am going to now that I'm hearing about it. I, almost forgot last time we talked, but I love it. You were like the early version of, you know, everyone on Instagram um, sharing their <laughs> stuff. Yes, I was, a, I was a, you know, early to the game, I guess, but really did not capitalize. Dang. <laughs> I, remember, I remember watching Jenna Marble's videos. I was like obsessed with her. Oh, I continued to watch her up until this year because like the, what a special connection to her. Um, and she's just a hilarious lady. She's our next guest. We're going to track her down. And <laughs> 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 um, so like, I, 
and, and it's so interesting. I, the, what you mentioned how you didn't want to answer questions from everybody about how are you? And like, I'm still going through that where it's like, I'm still being asked that question. And I'm like, you know, I'm good. I don't like, I don't really want to get into it right now. It's a hard thing to, to talk about that a bunch. I guess, did that change? I guess when you were going through this, obviously you're interacting with friends and family a little bit differently. Does that still inform, like, do people still ask you that question? You're about what, 10 years out now. Does it still come up? Does it inform like how you talk to your family still, or maybe even new relationships? Like how has that experience and people having to check on you changed how you've interacted with others kind of into adulthood? Yeah, it's definitely waxed and waned over the years how I approach it. Um, it's clearly a trauma that early on I would just bring up and be like, here's my story. Um, especially in like first or second dates, which, um, Honestly, I'm an advocate for, don't bring it up in like a really traumatic spilling of the guts way, but in a, um, this is something I've been through, I'm awesome kind of way. So there was lots of that early on in my 20s, um, you know, up to five years out. I think with my family, I don't, we don't talk so much about it anymore. Um, occasionally my mom and I will reflect on that time, but it's not, it's, it's not the center of my world anymore. You know, the most I talk about my own experience and um, my story is in these kind of incidents or, or in professional um, settings where I'm connecting with others and, and sharing my story. And truthfully, at this point, like sometimes it's hard to remember everything I've been through. It was 10 years ago now that um, I'll be celebrating 10 years out of treatment in June. And 10 years has passed <laughs> and I feel like even the last couple of years have really aged me. So um, it, it's hard to always remember the, the little details and emotions that I went through and the ups and downs, but I, I, I love staying connected to it because it very much has um, shaped the person I am, the professional that I am. Um, and so I'm still an open book about it. <laughs> Even though I'm, what am I now, like two and a half years post-op, but I feel like people will start to ask me like, oh, like, how are you? But like, I take it as like, oh, I'm great. Like, I did this today. I did that yesterday. Like, oh, I'm looking forward to this, all that. But I know there's always that like underlying like kind of, oh, but no, like, how are you actually? It's so funny when I meet someone, especially in like a professional setting or something, and um, they ask how I got into my job, and I, I'm like, well, I had cancer, um, so that led me down this rabbit hole, and um, they go, and how are you now? And I, it's always such a funny question. It's like, well, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm 10 years out. It's all good. Um, I know not every cancer diagnosis can say the same. Sometimes they're ongoing, but like, for me, Hodgkin's lymphoma is very much typically, you know, that one portion of your life, one chapter of your life, and you're able to flip past it. Um, so I always appreciate those questions, but it, it cracks me up every time someone goes, are you okay now? And I'm like, yes, I'm healthy, I'm happy, I'm, I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, well, that answered my next question because I was going to ask, I don't know much about lymphoma or Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's or anything, but I was going to ask, is this kind of like a one and done thing or is this kind of like a recurring scenario that you'll have to go through later on in life as well? Yeah, so Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, for those that are listening that are unaware of what it is, it's a blood cancer that actually um, shows up in your lymph nodes. Um, and so it's a little different from non-Hodgkin's, a lot different. Um, so with Hodgkin's, there are some specific cells that um, show up to be able to say, hey, this is Hodgkin's lymphoma. Every other type of lymphoma that's not Hodgkin's is literally called non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And there's like 60 plus subtypes of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that are all very different. But with Hodgkin's, um, it is a really common in young adults. Uh, the most common cancer in young adults, but it's also the one of the most curable. Um, so it's had the same standard of care since, I want to say like the 70s or 80s. It's been a long time. Um, it needs some revamping, I'll say, but uh, so scientists get on it. It is very much depending on your staging and everything. For me, I was stage two. 
um, and I went through six months of ABVD. Now, <laughs> I have a really interesting story because the doctor that I had um, didn't always do things the kosher way and is actually in jail because of it. Um, so I don't know if I got too much chemo or what, or if it was just delivered in a very expensive way. Um, but if you'd like to hear about his story, um, he's on Dr. Death season two. So that was my doctor, was Dr. Fada. Get out. Get yeah. out. We were just talking about this. Oh my God. Yeah, that was my doctor. Oh my um, God. Yeah, it, I have not been able to listen past episode one. It's been a little hard. Um, but yeah, he just, you know, listening to it and realizing some of the things that he did um, that were not not appropriate or not the standard um, and just made it way more expensive for insurance companies. Another reason I'm so glad I was on my parents' insurance while I was going through all this, because can you imagine if I had no job or I just rolled off and had bad insurance? Yeah, so it was uh, interesting. So I don't know, and I can't speak for everyone who's had my diagnosis because I have that weird caveat in my story. But um, yeah, it's typically, to bring it back around to your question, it's typically, you know, you get a few months, a few rounds, um, sometimes there's radiation. It's usually cured um, or in remission after that first treatment. Some people have a really aggressive um, Hodgkin's lymphoma, but um, that's pretty rare from what I understand. Um, but yeah. Man, I, I didn't know that that was your doctor. We had just talked about that recently. <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like to listen back and then hear, that's insane. I mean, I know that my grandpa, it was totally different, but he, his doctor ended up kind of like under an investigation for probably something similar. I think it was more like insurance fraud than anything else, but it was still like, I mean, just the fear of like, oh my gosh, did we go through this whole experience and, and receive treatment and, and, you know, have basically unnecessary hardship along with what was already happening, which was that there was cancer to fix. And right. I, I can't imagine what that was like for you to have to find that out and then now kind of have it like idealized in some ways. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it was, the summer after I was done with treatment, I believe that he was arrested and the case was brought up. So it was really weird being, what was I at that point, 20, and um, having to get my medical records from the FBI. <laughs> really weird experience. Luckily, my mom worked for a lawyer who was friends with the um, actual attorney that was representing the, the insurance companies. <laughs> so I was able to get my medical records so that I could go get a checkup um, elsewhere and get my records looked at, looked at so that we made sure that, you know, everything was good to go. I didn't have a larger lawsuit or anything. I was, it was fine. Truthfully, he just tried to do expensive things. He didn't diagnose me, he just treated me. Um, my surgeon was the one that diagnosed me. It's very easy to diagnose Hodgkin's lymphoma. Like I said, there is a specific cell that you look for in the um, biopsy. And if you have that cell, you have Hodgkin's. Um, and so harder to uh, manipulate that one. But he would deliver chemotherapy really slowly. So I'd be in the chair for four, five, six hours. And I'd have to go back in the next day for what he called hydration, which according to Dr. Death was not uh, what you were supposed to be doing. Um, but it was just an expensive way to get me to come in and do more. And then he would also tell me all the time that I looked pale and probably needed some iron didn't draw my blood and say, hey, your iron's low. He just would say, you look pale, you should come in for an iron infusion, which like this big black vial of um, iron. And I remember him, I remember it being weird because at the end of my time in Clarkston, my hometown, I <laughs> had to go back to school and he was like, oh, you're looking a little pale. And I was like, okay, I'm white. I'm very white, like my makeup, my tan makeup is called fair. Um, so like, yes, of course I look 
look really white. And I was like, I can't come in for this shot. I have to go back to school. I can't come in for this. I was like, is there any other thing I can do anywhere? I can go over there to get it. You know, he's like, well, no, you can't go anywhere else for it. All this stuff. And then told me to take some over-the-counter iron, iron medication. So for years, I was taking iron medication <laughs> thinking I needed to. And then that came up. And I was like, okay, probably don't need to take that anymore unless a doctor, another doctor actually recommends it. So yeah, kind of some weird shady things, but um, we know that I had cancer. I felt the tumor myself. You just probably could have had shorter treatment or um, maybe a little bit easier of treatment had we not gone to him. So just another interesting facet, always go get a second opinion. <laughs> always go get a second opinion. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's, it's so bananas. I it's wild. I'm, I'm so glad that you're okay and that they like, it was properly diagnosed and it was treated the right way. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that that happened. That's really scary to think about if it had been handled differently. I, so the other thing I'm kind of curious about, and, and maybe this leads into that, right? That happened a little bit after your treatment. And you said some of the first dates, second dates since then, you would meet people and you'd kind of tell them what was going on. I don't know if this ever comes up. This is something new, but just in general, talking about your experience, has it changed kind of how you like have you how often do you tell people is like you said you kind of professionally would bring it up quickly have there been any big changes over time as to how you handle that how you talk about it how often you bring it up yeah I'll focus it on dating because that kind of sounds what you're interested in Nikki's fishing <laughs> Very, I'm, fishing. I'm yeah, on the app right now I need to bust you know <laughs> right I am the type of person that is very okay with being vulnerable to a fault, um, to being a wide open book, sharing my opinions when probably I don't need to, um, sharing my experiences, oversharing sometimes. Um, and so coming from that angle, um, when I was dating, I'm in a relationship for like almost three years now. So it's been a while since I've had to go on a first date, but I was would not shy away from it simply because one of the first date questions was always, what do you do for a living? Like, what do you do? And I've always worked in either cancer nonprofit or nonprofits in general. Um, there's been maybe a year and a half of my professional wor world where I wasn't working in the cancer space. And so, um, you know, sharing that, oh, I do fundraising or I do mission or whatever with XYZ company, and they'd be like, oh, that's really interesting. How did you get, how did you get that job? And that's when I'm just like, okay, well, here's a story for you. And from there, um, I always loved sharing my story because it's part of who I am. It's a big part of my life, professionally, personally. And it's always um, just fun to talk about <laughs> in a weird way because it gets people interested. They share their stories, their experiences with cancer, maybe their dad, their sister, their aunt, whoever it is. Um, and it, for me, I thought it took first dates, second dates, whenever you decide to talk about it to a new level. It takes the relationship to a really open level, probably to a fault though, because there was a lot of guys I was not interested in continuing on with that I had then shared and they were like, wow, this whole, um, <laughs> we've been very vulnerable and open. And then I just was like, I'm sorry, I'm not really interested. And I felt so bad because I think they took me sharing that story, my story with them as, um, a sign that I was really into them when really I'm just a super open person um, and will share my story to anyone who will listen. So you gotta, you gotta be careful and navigate with caution. Um, but I'm always an advocate for being vulnerable, being open um, with someone that you trust and that's listening and would reciprocate because at the end of the day, you're looking for your person that you spend your life with. And if that's a weird thing for you to talk about or they're uncomfortable, that's not your person. <laughs> it's just not your person. They have to be cool with it. So I'm always one. I would always test <laughs> test the waters by just being super open. <laughs> yeah, I've been starting to do that. And we've talked about it a little bit. That just happened recently. I went on a first date. And that was uh, the way it came up for me was you know, we were talking about like, oh, well, what were you doing during quarantine? And this guy was saying how he's like, yeah, I don't know. I, I keep thinking about starting a podcast and his was totally unrelated. It was something like financial, but 
it was funny because I was like, yeah, I actually started a podcast in quarantine. Like, what else do we have going on? And then he's like, oh, cool. What's it about? And I was like, okay, yeah, while we're here, I guess I'll tell you. And, you know, right now it's easier. I still have this short hair that, I mean, people listening can't see, but it's an easier thing to see on me. But it is interesting the way that you can kind of bring it up. And I mean, for me, even though it's still pretty fresh, I'm still pretty open about it. Like you said, it's such a big part of what's going on in my life that it's hard not to, but. um, Well, hopefully it won't, it'll become less and less a part of your life. I've chosen to keep it a part of my life with my chosen profession, um, but uh, the the further you get on, the more you'll get a grasp, especially seeking out a therapist, talking through it, and all of that. It'll become less and less the front and center of what you think about and how you define yourself. Um, for a while, it'll really feel like, oh, I am this person. I am a cancer survivor. Um, but eventually it just becomes a chapter in your book, not the title of the book, you know? So it'll get there. (laughs) Yeah. And I know that in like what you just spoke about, like you mentioned that within your career, you've essentially always been working for like a nonprofit and like there was a year and a half that it like wasn't cancer related can you kind of go through like graduating college up until like what you're doing now then with LLS yeah yeah so I um in college got really connected um with Relay for Life and Colleges Against Cancer which does fundraising for the American Cancer Society um that was a really formative part of my college experience because I got to um, test out my leadership skills and connect with other students on campus that had a mission connection, a relation in some way to someone who had cancer or were survivors themselves. Often it was someone whose dad or grandpa or someone had some sort of cancer in their life. So um, that was like a group of 60 to 70 students on campus at any given time that was involved in planning Relay for Life and all kinds of fun activities um, throughout the year. And we would meet every week. And it was a really fun community that I entered. And I really discovered that I loved planning events and just nonprofit work in general. And I had a really wonderful staff partner. Um, her name was Savannah. I still talk to her almost every day. <laughs> and um, she was really formative in me choosing to go into fundraising as a career, as opposed to pursuing like a master's in social work and going on to um, be you know, a therapist of some sort or caseworker. Um, I really just loved the work. So I, right before I even graduated, applied to an open position that they had um, in the Grand Rapids office, and I ended up uh, getting it. I had to leave one of my classes to take the call that I got the job, and then I was like, yes, I will take any money you give me. I don't care. I don't know how to negotiate. Um, I was like, yes, please. (laughs) Thank you, and they said they would wait for me to start until I graduated, and so I two months later graduated and that was a Saturday I walked across the stage and by Monday I was in the office. I worked there for almost four years um, before leaving and it was at about the time when I was just sick of talking about cancer. Um, I was sick of talking about myself (laughs) and I really wanted to test and see if fundraising um, which is a very hard job. And to all my fundraisers out there, you rock um, because it's a hard job. It's a lot of hours, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of people, especially in the cancer world, saying really horrible things about there's a cure, we're just hiding it, you know, crazy things like that. So I just needed to get out of that a little bit. So I went and worked for just a little while at the March of Dimes to see if I really wanted to do fundraising or if it was just that I had a story. Um, And that's why I wanted to, that's why I was in the field that I was in. Um, Turned out I didn't love fundraising, but I still, I was healing and I took about a year and a half where I worked there and I kind of healed and stepped away from the cancer world for a minute. 
And by the, I, I just realized I did want to still work in the cancer world. It is a very big part of me. It's what I can relate to people on the most. And I wanted to help, but I could not go back into the development and fundraising space. So I looked for the mission side of things. And um, every nonprofit obviously has a mission and they have people who support that mission through funds, their fundraising team, the income team, and they have people who spend that money and make the programs and wonderful things happen um, that the fundraisers are out there selling. So I wanted to be on that kind of spending side where I got to say, I want to create programs. I want to help people. I want to have direct contact with our clientele rather than um, with our people who fundraise. So um, I looked for a while and uh, magically this job opened up um, and LinkedIn connection actually had posted it. I read the description and I said, well, isn't that me? Me to a T. Um, and so the job was what I currently have, which is patient and community outreach manager here at Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Um, and I, what I do now is I cover Michigan and Indiana. And um, my main role is to connect newly diagnosed cancer patients, blood cancer patients and their families to our resources and resources outside of LLS, host education events, um, which of course we're doing virtually and uh, connect with all of our wonderful social workers, nurses, doctors, healthcare professionals across these two states and make sure that they know that the LLS is here to help, um, here to help them take some work off their plate by supporting their patients and here to help their patients directly. So it's a really fun job and is exactly, I think, what I wanted when I first entered into the nonprofit space. Um, but you kind of have to get your foot in the door in the salesy type world, right? So that is, that's how I ended up here. And it is the best job. It is truthfully the best job. I wish, I, I hope I can do it for as long as they'll have me. <laughs> that's awesome. And I, it's fun because you've talked about how like you now, you know, tell your story and being a survivor, you talk to other survivors who are able to kind of get a different perspective speaking with them. Are there a lot of your colleagues who are also survivors or are you kind of, I imagine obviously everyone has someone in their life that's been impacted by cancer. Is that common or are you like the spokesperson for your team because you're the one who's been through it? Has it been common? Yeah, actually, um, my colleague in Indiana, she actually lives there um, and does the same job as me, but she covers a different area. And uh, she's a young adult survivor as well. And we have a few others on my team specifically across the country that are young adult survivors, which is really cool. Pretty much everyone that I have talked to at LLS has some sort of connection to our mission. Whether it's blood cancer or another type of cancer, pretty much everyone's interacted or had that experience. And so it's really cool to be in a company where people just get it. <laughs> they understand the story, they know and can relate. And then we're working all together to fight against it and to raise funds for research and better better treatments, better access to treatment, you know, all these wonderful things. So um, it truly is the coolest place to work. <laughs> That's awesome. How, so like, how do people get involved or like newly diagnosed people, like how do they get involved or get interacted or any interaction with LLS? Yeah, so um, we have a phone number, a 1-800 number called our Information Resource Center. And on the other, line, other end of that line are information specialists who are master's level social workers, nurse navigators, um, professionals who have been in the oncology world for quite a while, who literally their job all day is to talk to patients and answer their questions. And that number is one 800 955 Four five seven two, and they are open 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Friday, and they are there to answer questions. So if you are, you know, wanting to talk to someone who has your same diagnosis, if you are just looking for some education or a video to watch, or maybe you need paper pamphlets because um, you have a grandfather that's going through something and he doesn't know how to use a computer, but he can still read. <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. We can help 
anyone um, in any way. And we try to be there. And if we can't be the support and we're not the answer that is needed, then we also always refer on um, and provide resources outside of LOS as well. And that's something that I really love about what we do too is, you know, it's not just LLS, we all work together to support our patients. So yeah, call that number, go to LLS.org or you, they can even reach out to me if they're in Michigan and Indiana. If they're not, still reach out to me, I can get you where you need to go to. But the best bet is 1-800-955-4572. Awesome, thank you. And I mean, we connected, I, I obviously put my little thing online. I didn't connect with LLS at all until afterward. I think I'm also a little bit stubborn and like thought that I was the only person who ever experienced this. So while it was happening, I really didn't want to talk to anyone. And then afterward, I was like, oh shit, like I, I think I need some help. This has been a lot. So I'm glad we connected and, and you know, we've kind of gotten involved. I'm trying to get more involved in the LLS. You mentioned this in the beginning, but you've obviously been with LLS for a little time and with some other nonprofits. Have you had any like insane stories, individuals that have stuck out to you just that you could share as either cool or inspirational or like a funny I don't know, any, any people that stick out to you that you've met through this experience? Oh, I've met so many people. The thing about being um, a fundraiser, especially at ACS and my early on in my career, um, I worked with hundreds of volunteers. So at any given time, I think I had like seven events that I was staffing, which was insane. Good thing I was 23 and had a lot of energy because it's a lot. And it was literally hundreds, like some of these planning committees had 60 people on them. <laughs> it was a lot. Um, and so anyone, I mean, there's been so many people that have touched, touched me um, in my life. I can share, I think the thing that most enrages me and sticks out the most when you say that is just the people that would come up to me at an event and give me a donation and say, this better not go in your pocket or I'm donating, but I know that there's a cure and things like that. And it was always so frustrating. And I don't mean to bring up like a really negative thing, but it is the thing that sticks out the most and absolutely not okay. Terrible behavior. Um, please never say that to a fundraiser and simply thank them and maybe get them a coffee because they're exhausted and doing this work, working, you know, 60, 70 hours to put on this event. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of those interactions in some of the more rural parts of Michigan that I would get that um, really made me rethink my job. But yeah, there's been some really fantastic people too. I've met so many wonderful people that I still keep up touch with. We'll text, we'll talk on Facebook, whatever, um, that I just, I, like I, I my life is so enriched because I've met all of these wonderful people and the string that ties us all together, uh, as Taylor Swift would say, is cancer. <laughs> so it's, it's great to have a community like that. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And then oh, just on that, I mean, any words of wisdom as like a, not only as like a survivor, but also like this patient and community outreach manager, this just person who has been through all of this, has heard every, a bunch of stories, like any words of wisdom or advice that you can give minus don't tell people to who give donations that it's not going to go <laughs> yeah. in their pocket or something. That's a, that's a good nugget. No, I <laughs> reach out if you're newly diagnosed, if you're newly out of treatment, if you're five years out of treatment and you're struggling, there are supports out there for you. And I also, Nikki, was way too proud to reach out to any of these places um, and actually seek support, actually look for help. But it's so, so important to do. And there's quite a bit out there that you can take advantage of to really help you in a number of ways, whether it's emotional, social, um, physical, financial, whatever it might be, there's something out there. So don't be shy. Don't be too proud. That reason those things exist are for you. So, um, you know, and that's speaking as a professional, but that's also speaking as someone who did not take advantage of things like, you know, scholarships that I could have gotten and um, all kinds of things that I really missed out on that I, I kick myself for all the time. 
Yeah, something that I found just to go off of that, and like I said, I didn't reach out until uh, kind of right after I'm starting to get involved and I'm starting to like settle in enough to feel comfortable talking about it and reaching out. But in the age of the internet and Instagram, there's so many resources to find. There's not only big organizations like LLS that will also direct you to smaller organizations, but there's so many like individual people like Emily and I, right? We're starting this little mini community. And so far it's like our parents and our friends who listen, but hopefully eventually there'll be other patients who show up and want to hear about it. But there's so many of, of these types of smaller things, any perspective you can look for, you can find on the internet. And that's kind of what I've been finding is like, I'm following random people on Instagram who are like live in England and work on cancer care there through their national health system, which looks different from ours, but it's still kind of a shared experience. So it's, it's cool that that exists. And I'm glad that LLS, you know, can do that on a really big scale, but also point to some of the smaller ones too, because um, they're everywhere, which is really cool. Yeah, definitely don't be afraid to seek out others that are like you too. I still am internet friends with some of the people I interacted with back then because of my videos. Um, and it's, it's cool to have that shared experience and people that I now on the internet have never met in person, but have known for 10 years. And it's just a really unique experience that we get to take advantage of and uh, highly recommend. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that we got to talk about this and have you on and, you know, hear your wisdom and your experience and also just, you know, laugh and smile a little bit. Any other closing words, anything you want to plug? I know you already gave the number for LLS, which we're happy about, and it's LLS.org. Um, anything else where people can find you or find resources, whatever else? Yeah, I think um, really just thank you guys for uh, inviting me. Thank you for doing this. Um, I'm so jealous that podcasts weren't a thing back when I was doing my YouTube videos because I'm a huge podcast junkie and um, would have loved to have my own. <laughs> Again, I love to talk, uh, but I think uh, just, you know, reach out lls.org 1-800-955-4572. I'll give you guys my email to post also in the show notes in case anyone does need my services or my support. Um, but yeah, we're, you're not alone. And obviously we're all here for you. Great words to end with. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Uh, well, guys, uh, again, for tuning in to that six letter word. We hope you get out there, be kind, spread joy. Get weird and fuck shit up. We'll talk next time. And we'll talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This podcast is recorded and edited by Nikki Steltenkamp and Emily Sweet. Our song is from GarageBand and our cover art is by Jazz Parker. We'll talk to you next time.